Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. I'm now going to embark on something that I haven't done before, and that is basically to completely rip off somebody else's work. This is from Cold Takes, the audio version of the blog about futurism, macrohistory, ethics, and sometimes sports, he says here. All possible views about humanity's future are wild by Holden Karnofsky. This is Holden Karnofsky, and I'll be reading through the blog post, All Possible Views About Humanity's Future Are Wild. Uh, This will be a very amateur recording, but for people who prefer listening to reading, I think it's better than nothing. So, uh, starting with the summary of the post. In a series of posts, starting with this one, I'm going to argue that the 21st century could see our civilization develop technologies allowing rapid expansion throughout our currently empty galaxy and therefore that this century could determine the entire future of the galaxy for tens of billions of years or more. This view seems wild. We should be doing a double take at any view that we live in such a special time. I illustrate this with a timeline of the galaxy. On a personal level, this wildness is probably the single biggest reason I was skeptical for many years of the arguments presented in this series. Such claims about the significance of the times we live in seem wild enough to be suspicious. But I don't think it's really possible to hold a non-wild view on this topic. I discuss alternatives to my view. A conservative view that thinks the technologies I'm describing are possible but will take much longer than I think. And a skeptical view that thinks galaxy-scale expansion will never happen. Each of these views seems wild in its own way. Ultimately, as hinted at by the Fermi paradox, it seems that our species is simply in a wild situation. Before I continue, I should say that I don't think humanity or some digital descendant of humanity expanding throughout the galaxy would necessarily be a good thing, especially if this prevents other life forms from ever emerging. I think it's quite hard to have a confident view on whether this would be good or bad. I'd like to keep the focus on the idea that our situation is wild. I'm not advocating excitement or glee at the prospect of expanding through the galaxy. I'm advocating seriousness about the enormous potential stakes. And now the full piece. My view. This is a first in a series of pieces about the hypothesis that we live in the most important century for humanity. In this series, I'm going to argue that there's a good chance of a productivity explosion by 2100, which could quickly lead to what one might call a technologically mature civilization. This would mean that we'd be able to start sending spacecraft throughout the galaxy and beyond, that those spacecraft could mine materials, build robots and computers, and construct very robust, long-lasting settlements on other planets, harnessing solar powers from stars and supporting huge numbers of people and or digital descendants of people. I'll also argue in a future piece that there is a chance of value lock-in here. Whoever is running the process of space expansion might be able to determine what sorts of people are in charge of the space settlements and what sorts of societal values they have, in a way that is stable for many billions of years. If that ends up happening, you might think of the story of our galaxy like this. I've marked major time milestones along the way from no life to intelligent life that builds its own computers and travels through space. And now there's a graphic that is very hard to describe, so I would probably go to the blog post and just look at the graphics. Um, But it's basically a timeline of the tens of billions of years uh, in 
all time for the galaxy, or rather, it's only part of that. Um, but it it kind of shows that the you know everything that's important, the first brains, the first tool use, human civilization, the scientific revolution, the first computers, first space travel, beginning of space expansion, um, are all, according to my view, going to happen in exactly the same spot on the timeline, and that's where we live. And that is crazy. Uh, according to me, there's a decent chance that we live at the very beginning of the tiny sliver of time during which the galaxy goes from nearly lifeless to largely populated. That out of a staggering number of persons who will ever exist, we're among the first. And that of, out of hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy, ours will produce the beings that fill it. I know what you're thinking. The odds that we could live in such a significant time seem infinitesimal. The odds that Holden is having delusions of grandeur on behalf of all of Earth, but still, seem far higher. But, let's consider an alternative to my view, that I'll call the conservative view. Let's say you agree with me about where humanity could eventually be headed, that we'll eventually have the technology to create robust, stable settlements throughout our galaxy and beyond. But let's say you think it will take a lot longer than I'm saying. Part of my view, which I'll write about more later, is that within this century we could develop advanced enough AI to start a productivity explosion. So let's say that's where you disagree with me. You think I'm underrating the fundamental limits of AI systems to date. You think we'll need an enormous number of new scientific breakthroughs to build AIs that truly reason as effectively as humans. And even once we do, expanding throughout the galaxy will be a longer road still. So you don't think any of this is happening this century. You think instead that it will take something like 500 years. That's 5 to 10 times the time that has passed since we started building computers. It's more time than has passed since Isaac Newton made the first credible attempt at laws of physics. It's about as much time as has passed since the very start of the scientific revolution. Actually, let's go even more conservative. Let's say you think our economic and scientific progress will stagnate. Today's civilizations will crumble and many more civilizations will fall and rise. Sure, we'll eventually get the ability to expand throughout the galaxy, but you think it will take a 100,000 years. That's 10 times the amount of time that has passed since human civilization even began. So now let's look at your version of the timeline. And it's essentially exactly the same. There's no way to tell the difference between your timeline and my timeline, because the difference between when I say space expansion starts and when you do isn't even a pixel, so it just doesn't show up. In the scheme of things, the conservative view I've just described and my view are the same. It is true that the conservative view does not have the same urgency for our generation in particular, but it still places us among a tiny proportion of people in an incredibly significant time period, and it still raises questions of whether the things we do to make the world better even if they only have a tiny flow-through to the world 100,000 years from now, could be amplified to a galactic historical outlier degree. So now let's discuss the skeptical view, a third view. This would essentially be that humanity, or some descendant of humanity, will never spread throughout the galaxy. There are many reasons this might not happen. I'll list them. Maybe something about space travel and or setting up mining robots or solar panels or etc. on other planets is effectively impossible, such that even another hundred thousand years of human civilization won't reach that point. Or maybe, for some reason, it will be technologically feasible, but it won't happen, because nobody wants to do it, 
because those who don't want to do it block those who do, etc. Maybe it's possible to expand throughout the galaxy, but not possible to maintain a presence on many planets for billions of years, for some reason. Maybe humanity is destined to destroy itself before any of this happens. However, note that if the way we destroy ourselves is by misaligned artificial intelligence, which I'll discuss more in the future, it would be possible for AI to build its own technology and spread throughout the galaxy. And that still seems in line with the spirit of the above sections. In fact, it highlights that how we handle AI this century could have ramifications for many billions of years. So humanity would have to go extinct in some way that leaves no other intelligent life or intelligent machines behind. Otherwise, we're still living in the very significant time when they take over the galaxy. Maybe an extraterrestrial species will spread throughout the galaxy before we do, or around the same time. However, note that this doesn't seem to have happened in the 13.77 billion years so far since the universe began. And according to the above sections, there's only about one and a half billion years left for it to happen before we spread throughout the galaxy. Well, maybe some extraterrestrial species already effectively has spread throughout our galaxy, and for some reason we just don't see them. Maybe they are hiding their presence deliberately, for one reason or another, while being ready to stop us from spreading too far. This would imply that they are choosing not to mine energy from any of the stars we can see, at least not in a way that we could see it. That would, in turn, imply that they're abstaining from mining a very large amount of energy that they could use to do whatever it is they want to do, including defend themselves against species like ours. Well, maybe this is all a dream, or a simulation, or maybe something else I'm not thinking of. There are a fair number of possibilities for how we would never spread throughout the galaxy, but many seem quite wild in their own way. Collectively, they might add up to more than 50% probability, but I would feel very weird claiming they're collectively overwhelmingly likely. Ultimately, it's very hard for me to see a case against thinking something like this is at least reasonably likely, that we will eventually create robust, stable settlements throughout our galaxy and beyond. It seems like saying no way to that would itself require wild confidence in something about the limits of technology, and or long-run choices people will make, and or the inevitability of human extinction, and or something about aliens or simulations. I imagine what I'm saying will be intuitive to many readers, but not all. Defending it in depth is not on my agenda at the moment, but I will rethink that if I get enough demand. Next section, why all possible views are wild, the Fermi Paradox. So, I'm claiming that it would be wild to think we're basically assured of never spreading throughout the galaxy, but I'm also saying it's wild to think that we have a decent chance of spreading throughout the galaxy. In other words, I'm calling every possible belief on this topic wild. That's because I think we're in a wild situation. Here are some alternative situations we could have found ourselves in that I wouldn't consider so wild. We could live in a mostly populated galaxy whether by our species or by a number of extraterrestrial species. We could be in some densely populated region of space, surrounded by populated planets. Perhaps in that world we could read up on the history of our civilization, and we could know, from history and from the fact that we don't see empty stars, that we're not unusually early life forms with unusual opportunities. Or, we could live in a world where the kinds of technologies I've been discussing just don't seem like they'd ever be possible. In this world... We wouldn't have any hope of doing space travel or successfully studying our own brains or building our own computers. Maybe we could somehow detect life on other planets, but if we did, we'd see them all having an equal lack of that sort of technology. It would be impossible. But these aren't the worlds we live in. 
Space expansion seems feasible, and our galaxy is empty. These two things together seem in tension. A similar tension, the question of why we see no signs of extraterrestrials, despite the galaxy having so many possible stars they could emerge from, is often discussed under the heading of the Fermi Paradox. Wikipedia has a list of possible resolutions to the Fermi Paradox. Many correspond to the skeptical possibilities that I gave above. Some seem less relevant to this piece. For example, there are various reasons extraterrestrials might be present but not detected. However, I think any world in which extraterrestrials don't prevent our species from galaxy-scale expansion end up wild in the sense I've been discussing, even if the extraterrestrials are there. My current sense is that the best analysis of the Fermi paradox available today favors the explanation that intelligent life is extremely rare. Something about the appearance of life in the first place, or the evolution of brains, is so unlikely that it hasn't happened in many or any other parts of the galaxy. And a footnote here goes to a paper arguing for this point. That would imply that the hardest, most unlikely steps on the road to galaxy-scale expansion are the steps our species has already taken. And that, in turn, implies that we live in a strange time, extremely early in the history of an extremely unusual star. If we started finding signs of intelligent life elsewhere in the galaxy, I'd consider that a big update away from my current view. It would imply that whatever has stopped other species from galaxy-wide expansion will also stop us. Final section, this pale blue dot could be an awfully big deal. Describing Earth as a tiny dot in a photo from space, Anne Druyan and Carl Sagan wrote, The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that, in glory and triumph, They could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. The quote I just read is a somewhat common sentiment, that when you pull back and think of our lives in the context of billions of years, and billions of stars, you see how insignificant all the things we care about today really are. But here, I've been making the opposite point. It looks for all the world as though our tiny dot has a real shot at being the origin of a galaxy-scale civilization. It seems absurd, even delusional, to believe in this possibility. But given our observations, it seems equally strange to dismiss it. And if that's right, it means the choices made in the next hundred thousand years or even this century, could determine whether that galaxy-scale civilization comes to exist, and what values it has, across billions of stars and billions of years to come. So when I look up at the vast expanse of space, I don't think to myself, ah, in the end none of this matters. What I think is, well, some of what we do probably doesn't matter, but some of what we do might matter more than anything ever will again. It would be really good if we could keep our eye on the ball. And there he ends his first uh, foray into uh, podcasting on this subject. Now, I, uh, uh, my understanding of the Fermi paradox is basically um, when we look out to see where all the other aliens are, we don't see any. Why is that? Um, there are lots of answers. 
I like the um, the Star Trek answer being that they're waiting for us to get to an evolved state um, where they will uh, be able to talk to us on a sort of a vaguely level basis and don't want to pollute our in our evolutionary uh, social uh, progress uh, by um, interfering with us like uh, the, the the Star Trek Prime Directive. Uh, does when <laughs> after humans were uh, deemed worthy of joining the alien group of nations. But um, now, I want to be positive about things. I think that it's a much nicer idea to think that humans are going to have a fantastic future. And I'm going to continue posting these things because I want that positive worldview to take root rather than the negative one that my students appear to have at the moment, thinking that the future is getting worse for kids. I want this and other things I'll say to show to them it's getting better. Next piece. This is Holden Karnofsky, and I'll be reading the blog post The Duplicator. The website Mr. Karnofsky speaks of is www.cold-takes.com. When some people imagine the future, they picture the kind of thing you see in sci-fi films. But these sci-fi futures seem very tame compared to the future I expect. In sci-fi, the future is different mostly via shiny buildings, gadgets, holograms, Robots doing many of the things humans do today, advanced medicine, souped-up transportation from hoverboards to flying cars to space travel and teleportation. But fundamentally, there are the same kinds of people we see today, with the same kinds of personalities, goals, relationships, and concerns. The future I picture is enormously bigger, weirder, faster, and either much, much better or much, much worse compared to today. It's also potentially a lot sooner than sci-fi futures. I think particular achievable-seeming technologies could get us there quickly. These technologies could include digital people or particular forms of advanced AI, each of which I'll discuss in a future piece. For now, I want to focus on just one aspect of what these sorts of technology would allow, the ability to make instant copies of people or of entities with similar capabilities. Economic theory and history suggest that this ability alone could lead to unprecedented, in history or in sci-fi movies, levels of economic growth and productivity. This is via a self-reinforcing feedback loop in which innovation leads to more productivity, which leads to more copies of people who in turn create more innovation and further increase productivity, which in turn, etc., I interrupt him here because I think he ought to consider, when talking about large numbers of people, those in China, India, Africa, and indeed parts of Russia, and the large number of people in this country who are badly educated or have no communication with the outside world. We don't need to duplicate existing people to be able to have the sort of exponential growth he's talking about. 
A further and larger issue that has to be considered are the limits put on growth uh, due to the fact we live on a single planet. If he starts talking about going and expanding into space, I will have no problem with his thoughts, but he doesn't seem to mention this yet. So I take the following with a large pinch of salt. I suggest you do too, but it's all interesting stuff. How the duplicator works. Its key feature is making an instant copy of a person. Calvin walks in, and two identical Calvins walk out. This is importantly different from the usual and more realistic version of cloning, in which a person's clone has the same DNA, but has to start off as a baby and take years to become an adult. To flesh this out a bit, I'll assume that the duplicator allows any person to quickly make a copy of themselves, which starts from the same condition and mental state, or from an earlier state. For example, I could make a replica of Holden as of January 1st, 2015. Unlike in many sci-fi films, the copies function normally. They aren't evil or soulless or decaying or anything like that. And second, the duplicator can be used to make an unlimited number of copies, although each has some noticeable cost of production. They're not free. Productivity impacts. It seems that much of today's economy revolves around trying to make the most of scarce human capital. That is, some people are scarce or in demand. Extreme examples include Barack Obama, Sundar Pichai, Beyonce Knowles, and Jennifer Doudna. Okay, I've only ever heard of one of them, but uh, another is actually somebody to do with Google, so it has an impact and is relevant for us. These people have some combination of skills, experience, knowledge, relationships, reputation, etc. that make it very hard for other people to do what they do. Less extreme examples would be just about anyone who is playing a crucial role at an organization, hard to replace, and often well-paid. These people end up overbooked, with far more demands on their time than they can fulfill. Armies of other people end up devoting to saving their time and working around their schedules. The duplicator would remove these bottlenecks. For example, copies of Sundar Pichai could work at all levels of Google, armed with their ability to communicate easily with the CEO and make decisions as he would. They could also start new companies. Copies of the President of the U.S. could personally meet with any voter who wanted to interview the President, as well as with any congresspeople or potential appointees or advisors the President didn't have time to meet with. They could deeply study key domestic and international issues and report back to the original president. Putting aside the fact that he ignores the Star Trek transporter accident duplication of people, the trouble with having a large number of yourself is that the one that's going to be the boss still needs to have a considerable amount of time to talk to all the thousands of other versions. I don't see how this will help. Copies of Beyoncé could make as many albums as the market could support. They could deeply study and specialize in different musical genres. They could even try living different lifestyles to gain different life experiences, all of which could inform different albums that still all shared Beyoncé's personal aesthetic and creativity. There would probably be at least one Beyoncé copy whose music people considered better than the originals. That one could further copy herself. Copies of Jennifer Doudna could investigate any of the ideas and experiments the original doesn't have time to look into, as well as exploring the many fields she wasn't able to specialize in. There could be Jennifer Doudna copies in physics, chemistry, and computer science, as well as biology, 
each collaborating with many other Jennifer Doudna copies. All these Chinese, Indian, and African people may have a different worldview, but be equally talented to the few people he's mentioned. I don't see we need to duplicate a Western person. The ability to make copies for temporary purposes and run them at different speeds could further increase efficiency, as I'll discuss in a future piece about digital people. Explosive growth. Okay, the duplicator would make the economy more productive. But how much more productive? To answer that, I'm going to briefly summarize what one might call the viewpoint that population growth is the bottleneck to explosive economic growth. At this point, he goes into great length about all the links from which he has extracted these thoughts, and they are all on the cold-takes.com website. Here's my rough summary. In standard economic models, the total size of the economy, its total output, that is, how much stuff it creates, is a function of the following three things. One, how much total labor there is in the economy, that's people doing work. Two, how much capital there is in the economy. That's machines, energy sources, basically everything except labor. And three, how high productivity is, which means how much stuff is created for a given amount of labor and capital. This is also sometimes called technology. So the economy gets bigger when A, there is more labor available, B, there is more capital available, or C, when productivity increases. The total population affects both labor and productivity, because people can have ideas that increase productivity. My issue here is he's talking about standard texts describing the economy. The economy of the past that has got us into our environmental crisis, the wall that we cannot afford to hit, and he ignores this. One way things could theoretically play out in an economy would be First, the economy starts with some set of resources, capital, supporting some set of people, population. The set of people comes up with new ideas and innovations. This leads to some amount of increased productivity, so there's more total economic output. And that means people can afford to have more children. They do, and the population grows more quickly. Because of that population growth, the economy comes up with new ideas and innovations faster than before, because more people means more new ideas. People don't plan the size of their family on how rich they are, though, do they? This leads to even more economic output and even faster population growth in a self-reinforcing loop. More ideas, more output, more people. More ideas, more output, more people, etc. More space for them? When you incorporate this full feedback loop into economic growth models, they predict, under plausible assumptions, that the world economy will see accelerating growth. Accelerating growth is a fairly explosive dynamic in which the economy can go from small to extremely large with disorienting speed. The pattern of growth predicted by these models seems like a reasonably good fit with the data on the world economy over the last 5,000 years. That's discussed in Modeling the Human Trajectory, although there is an open debate on this point, and I discuss from a page linked from this post, how the debate could change my conclusions. So there's some hope he's not completely blind on this point. However... Over the last few hundred years, growth has not accelerated. It has been constant at around today's level. Why did accelerating growth transition to constant growth? This change coincided with the demographic transition. In the demographic transition, 
it stopped being the case that having more output meant having more children. Instead, more output just meant richer people, and people actually had fewer children as they became richer. This broke the self-reinforcing loop described above. Which I completely disagree with. Raising children is a massive investment of time and personal energy, not just capital, and children take a long time to mature. By changing what it takes to grow the population, the duplicator could restore the accelerating feedback loop. Only if we find more resources and more space to expand into, though, surely. Now, if we wanted to guess what a duplicator might do in real life, we might imagine that it would get back to the kind of acceleration the world economy had historically, which loosely implies, based on modeling the human trajectory, that the economy would reach infinite size sometime in the next century. Of course, that can't happen. At some point, the size of the economy would be limited by fundamental natural resources, such as the number of atoms or the amount of energy available in the galaxy. But in between here and running out of space or atoms or energy or something, we could easily see levels of economic growth that are massively faster than anything in history. That's the bit I like. He's right there. Over the last hundred years or so, the economy has doubled in size every few decades. With a duplicator, it could double in size every year or every month on its way to hitting the limits. Depending on how things played out, such productivity could result in an end to scarcity and material need or in a dystopian race between different people making as many copies of themselves as possible. I think the duplicator would be a more powerful technology than warp drives, tricorders, laser guns, or even teleporters. Minds are the source of innovation that can lead to all of those other things. A harder to intuit, but even more powerful technology would be digital people, the ability to run detailed simulations of people on a computer. Such simulated people could be copied duplicator style and could also be sped up, slowed down, and reset with virtual environments that were fully controlled. That was one in a series of Torty Talks by Simon Anthony, acting at torty.org.uk.